0: Well, two things that you might find helpful for the next few moments. So one is to have your Bible open. Uh, page 68 is the page number, the first of the two readings that um, Sandra read for us. Uh, the other thing that you might find helpful is to dig out uh, in your little bundle uh, this uh, sermon outline uh, so that uh, whether you like take notes or not, at least you can see where we're up to and uh, whether we're going to ever end. We are going to ever end. Uh, you'll be pleased to know. We've been uh, looking for a couple of weeks in the lead up to Easter at a couple of Old Testament passages Under the heading um, Looking Forward to Easter, not just because we are, but because uh, the Old Testament looks forward to Easter. And uh, today we look at Exodus chapter 12. And uh, just as um, Chris has helpfully reminded us uh, through as we've been singing this song, we do need to ask God to open our hearts. Uh, Let me do that now as we pray. Let's pray. We have been uh, praying uh, as we've been singing, Heavenly Father, that you would prepare our hearts. And so we ask you now to open up our ears to hear, uh, that you would help us to um, not only hear your word but receive it gladly and uh, may it bear fruit in our lives as we change to live lives uh, which point people to the Lord Jesus, lives which are pleasing in your sight and it's in Jesus' name we pray. I don't need to tell you, I've uh, noticed it uh, uh, for many years, I guess you have as well, how different Christmas is to Easter. At Christmas, a week away from Christmas, if we were uh, in that state now, there would be an eager expectation around, a buzz in the air. Everyone would be talking about it. What are you doing for Christmas? In our house, we can't wait for Christmas to come. And I've got to say, I love it as well, as well as the children. But Easter, of course we know it's coming, but if anyone's excited about anything to do with Easter, it's the thought of a long bank holiday weekend, or if we're really lucky, a chance to jet off to warmer climes. And yes, our children uh, like the idea of Easter eggs and gorging themselves silly on chocolate for a few days, but Easter and Easter weekend doesn't seem to have the same air of expectation and, and excitement around it, not even for the committed Christian family. For well, today as we look at, it, at Exodus chapter 12 and the Passover, I think we'll see that we, we've got it all wrong. Not that we shouldn't celebrate Christmas, but that Easter should be so much bigger for us. The Passover, Exodus 12, is looking forward to Easter. The Passover is fulfilled in the cross of Jesus Christ. And here we'll see how and how much the Passover and therefore Easter is to be enjoyed and celebrated it should be the greatest celebration of the year for the Christian. Indeed, it is that word celebration which has really struck me as I've uh, read this again uh, in preparation this week. I've not really seen this before. Look at how the Passover was to be marked. In Exodus chapter 12, one of the big words, one of the repeated words is this word celebration. I've put the, um, uh, the, the verses on the handout. Let's see, verse 14 This is a day you are to commemorate for the generations to come. You shall celebrate it as a festival to the Lord. The same word celebration comes twice in verse 17, comes again in verse 47, again in verse 48. The Passover was to be celebrated. And just look at the extent of the celebrations that they were to hold back then. Verse 15, for seven days you are to eat bread made without yeast. Look at verse 16. On the first day, hold a sacred assembly and another one on the seventh day. Do no work at all on these days except to prepare food for everyone to eat. That is all you may do. In other words, the, uh, the Lord, if I can put it this way, is telling us to have a big long bank holiday um, in order to celebrate. And he says the only work that you are to do is work in the kitchen to prepare food in order to have a scrumptious banquet. That's what you're to do for this time. Have a feast at Easter, not just on hollow chocolate eggs but delicious bread and roast lamb and wholesome fresh vegetables. Verse 17, celebrate the feast of unleavened bread because it was on this day that I brought you out of divisions out of Egypt. Celebrate this day as a lasting ordinance for the generations to come. So do you see the Passover was to be marked by one week-long celebration of feasting with the family. Because, as you see there in verse 17, it marked a day of deliverance. The Lord says in verse 17, it was the day I brought you out of Egypt. That brings us to our first point. See, we're getting through quite quickly. The first point on the handout, celebrate God's deliverance. See, that's what the Passover and indeed the whole of the book of Exodus is about. It's about a deliverance. Indeed, I would argue it's what the whole of the Bible is about. Uh, This Easter, a number of people will be jumping on aeroplanes to get away to somewhere warmer. And if Greece or one of the Greek islands is your destination of choice, and if to get there you fly with the Greek airline Aegean Air, when their air hostesses do that thing at the beginning of the flight, you know, where they run through the evacuation procedure, and then they point out the emergency exits, which are here, here, and here, remember that bit? Yeah, well, probably you don't. We all look down. We're not even bothered, are we? We all know how it goes. But as if you watch them as they point to the words "exit" on a G and Air, you will see the word not "exit" but "exodus." That's what exodus means. It's an exit, an escape route when you're in trouble. Now, this whole book is about an escape route, a deliverance. That is the very heart of the message of the Bible of the book of Exodus, of the Passover, and of Easter. It's about getting out of trouble, escaping a calamity. That's what Easter and the cross of Jesus is about. Now, at the Passover, verse 17, the Israelites were delivered out of Egypt. They were getting out of a calamity. Egypt held Israel captive, and they were hard taskmasters who enslaved Israel in the squalor and flies of that dusty land. How Israel longed to be free, and so the book begins by them crying out for deliverance from God. But while Egypt, uh, by being in slavery in Egypt, was terrible, there was something greater than being slaves in Egypt they needed to be delivered from. And we see that in verse 12. See, on the, night, on the same night I will pass through Egypt and strike down every firstborn, both men and animals, and I will bring judgment on all the gods of Egypt. I am the Lord. Now you see, yes, they needed to be delivered from Egypt, but they needed a greater deliverance, the deliverance from the judgment of God. I was uh, listening to the news the other day, and as they reported on one of the terrible war zones in the world at the moment the reporter talked about those caught up in this war zone as facing a fate worse than death that was the phrase they used here in verse 12 we see the fate that is worse than death it is the judgment of god because it is a fate that goes on beyond death indeed it is a fate that i really know at death As we die, we will all face God. And what a thought to meet him, not ready to meet him, but to face his judgment. That's a fate worse than death. We all need to find an exit, the exodus from that fate. Now, here's a great surprise that I've not really seen this clearly until this week. As we look carefully at verse 12, we see that religion won't deliver us from God's judgment again at verse 12. On that same night, I will pass through Egypt and strike down every firstborn, both men and animals, and I will bring judgment on all the gods of Egypt. I am the Lord. I will bring judgment on all the gods. Isn't that very striking? Egypt was a very religious nation. They had many gods. The Egyptian gods are represented here, represent all the superstitious ceremonies, all the magic, all the pagan beliefs by which people of that land tried to protect themselves in this life and especially through into the life to come. So look, we all know this. We've all seen the archaeological finds that the Egyptians were very religious and we know the extreme lengths they went to to get themselves through death and into the next life. You see, the point is this. They hoped that their religious superstitions, many of them, would protect them in death. But you see it there in verse 12, all attempts, including all religious attempts to rescue myself, actually rather than bring deliverance for me, compounds the problem and brings God's judgment on me. End of verse 12, the Lord says, I will bring judgment on all the gods of Egypt. You see, uh, let me try and spell it out because it might be a surprise to you what I'm saying. All religion is a rejection of God. By religion I mean man's attempt to escape this judgment, man's attempt to get right with God. All religion is a rejection of God because God says, I will rescue you. And religion says, no, I'll rescue myself. So we're all under the judgment of God because we've all rebelled against God. And God himself graciously gives us a way out, an exodus, an exit, and in religion, we say to God, no, I don't want to take the way out that you've given me. I'm going to do it my way. See how that gets us into even more trouble with God? And so religion and religious practice makes my predicament worse, not better. And that's something most people wouldn't expect the vicar to say. Religion can't help you. you we say, well, what are you doing today? Well, I hope we're not doing religion because religion is man's attempt to get right with God, but the Christian gospel is quite different. Since we had the baptism earlier, we weren't uh, saying to Nathaniel, now you've just got to keep doing lots of religious practices and you've got to try harder in order to get right with God. We were saying something quite different. We were saying, no, God has done something for you and we hope when you grow up you'll know that, that God has cleansed you. He has given you the, the, the exit, He's given you the way out of trouble, you see. Isn't that wonderful? I'm not asking you to do those of religious things, I'm asking you to remember the gospel of the Lord Jesus. Of course, the other great problem with religion is that in religion I'm never sure I've done enough. Never sure that I've been good enough or religious enough. And so I have no certainty of being at peace with God and no assurance that when I come face to face with him I'll be okay. So I hear someone describe his mother-in-law like this. And he, was be- he, he said she's a lovely lady. But he said this, a more religious person you are unlikely to find. She goes to the mass every week and follows all the rules, but she feels guilty. And then he said she was born in guilt and she will die in guilt. Now that's tragic and that's religion. Never knowing if you've done enough to get right with God but the gospel of Jesus Christ tells me it's all been done for me. There is an exit, there is an exodus, there is a way out of the problem of the judgment of God coming upon me. That's the heart of the Easter message. That's the heart of the cross of of, of Christ. And that brings me joy and peace and wonderfully confidence in death. Now that's worth celebrating. Can you think of anything more worth celebrating than the fact that you think, I know I'm right with God, and when I die, everything's going to be all right with him. I can't think of anything more wonderful to celebrate. So celebrate God's deliverance. Secondly, uh, on the handout, celebrate God's deliverance through the blood of the Lamb. Now that might sound like very technical Christian language, but it all comes from the Exodus, from Exodus chapter 12. The celebration here in the Exodus centers around a lamb, a lamb slaughtered. look with me at verse 21 of Exodus 12. Moses summoned all the elders of Israel and said to them, go at once and select the animals for your families and slaughter the Passover lamb. Take a bunch of hyssop, dip it into the blood in the basin and put some of the blood on the top and on both sides of the doorframe. Not one of you shall go out of the door of his house until morning. When the Lord goes through the land to strike down the Egyptians, he will see the blood on the top and sides of the doorframe, and will pass over. That's where the, 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 the name, the Passover, comes from. He will pass over that doorway and he will not permit the destroyer to enter your houses and strike you down. See, here's the Passover. The angel of death, rather than entering a household and killing the firstborn in that family, will pass over that house and will not bring God's judgment upon it. Now that deliverance came about through the death and blood of a lamb. We see it all spelled out earlier in the chapter. A lamb was to be bought, a a perfect lamb, a lamb without defect we're told in verse 5. And note in verse 6 how the lamb was to live in the family for four days. And then end of verse 6 the lamb was to be slaughtered, have its throat cut. And after the lamb had been roasted, the family were to eat the lamb that night. And while the lamb was being cooked, dad was to go outside the house with the blood of the lamb in a bucket. And you'll see, we've just read it in verse 22, he was to take a bunch of hyssop, that is a common herb in the Middle East, so pick, uh, pick something out of the garden and then use the hyssop as a paintbrush. And he was to paint the blood of the lamb on the door frame of the front door. And then he was to go inside eat with the family and make sure the family didn't leave the house that night and we're told that the blood of the slain lamb on the doorframe would save the family from the plague of the firstborn you see god had promised back in chapter 11 that he would bring upon egypt a most terrible judgment because you see the egypt the egyptians weren't letting his people go and he'd sent them plague after plague and they kept ignoring it and so now he had to send them the worst plague of all, the plague of the firstborn. And we read about that in chapter 11, verses 4 to 6. And if you're still on the handout, we're now over the page, which means we're probably about halfway through. Now, that might be very depressing for some of you to say, I'm only halfway. Or for some of you, you might be saying, well, that's okay, we're getting through it. See, please see it the other way if that's where you're at. We're nearly halfway through. And so, uh, chapter 11, verse 4. Moses said, this is what the Lord says, about midnight I'll go throughout Egypt. Every firstborn son in Egypt will die, from the firstborn son of Pharaoh who sits on the throne to the firstborn son of the slave girl who's at her handmill, and all the firstborn of the cattle as well. There'll be loud wailing throughout Egypt, worse than there has been or ever will be again. But among the Israelites, not a dog will bark or any man or animal. Then you will know the Lord makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel everyone in the land would be affected by the plague of the firstborn. That night, every household would wake up in the morning to find their firstborn child dead. Can you believe it? And there was one way and one way only to be rescued from that judgment. That was to take the lamb as a a substitute so the lamb would die instead of the firstborn in your family and you take the blood and put it on the, on the doorframe of the family home. The blood was a sign. They were sheltering under the blood of the lamb. And what a night that must have been. Look down to chapter 12 and verse 29. This is what actually happened. At midnight, the Lord struck down all the firstborn in Egypt, from the firstborn of Pharaoh, who sat on the throne, to the firstborn of the prisoner, who was in the dungeon, and the firstborn of all the livestock as well, Pharaoh and all his officials and all the Egyptians got up during the night and there was loud wailing in Egypt, for there was not a house without someone dead. It doesn't bear thinking about does it? The firstborn in the family and the firstborn in every family in the land dying that night. The grief and overwhelming sorrow that came upon the Egyptians that night must have been beyond anything any of us have ever experienced. But imagine the joy among the Israelites, joy like no other, to find your firstborn alive and well. When there was such calamity, but mine is safe. Can you imagine the relief and joy? In your mind's eye, come with me into an Israelite home that night. The eldest boy, Samuel, has just been sent off to bed. The family has eaten the roasted lamb. Earlier, Dad had put the blood of the lamb on the doorframe of the front door. Uh, When they were eating the meal, Dad explained to the family everything that was going to happen that night. Mum and Dad had especially reassured Samuel, their firstborn, that there was nothing to worry about. He needn't be frightened. God had promised that the angel of death would not enter a house where the blood is seen on the doorframe of the house and dad had covered the doorframe with the blood of the slaughtered land. He it twice just to make sure. And so they said to him, you can sleep safe and sound. Now let me ask you, do you think Samuel slept that night? At first he didn't because his two younger brothers, Joshua and Joseph, were having a pillow fight. But then they dropped off and normally he'd have dropped off too. But tonight he can't sleep. And after tossing and turning for an hour or two, I imagined him getting up out of bed, putting on his dressing gown and slippers and going downstairs to the kitchen for a glass of milk and asking his mum, who was reading the paper at the kitchen table, mum, did dad put the blood on the door frame? And mum reassuring him, yes, Samuel, of course he did. And will it work? Will it save me? Yes, Samuel, we've done exactly as the Lord told us. You've got nothing to worry about. Now go back to bed, darling, and we'll see you in the morning." And so as Samuel went back upstairs, and as mum saw her son going back up the stairs, what must she have been thinking? She was trusting the Lord. She was trusting that the blood of the lamb would bring salvation to the household. But do you think there might have been a little doubt in her mind? Is it going to work? And what about dad? Earlier in the evening he would painted the blood on the doorframe and at the same time his next door neighbour was painting the blood on the doorframe of his front door and when his neighbour finished the job he looked over the garden fence and said confidently to Samuel's dad well there we are safe and sound, the blood of the lamb will protect us from the judgment, my lads are safe as houses now. But Samuel's dad feeling a bit rocky in his face said to him I admire your faith. I know this is what the Lord's told us to do but I'm really finding it hard to see how it's going to make any difference at all. And his neighbour said to him, Oh, come on, Nathaniel, where's your faith? God has promised, and he never fails to keep his promise. Now I tell the little story because you can see among the Israelites that night there were there were people of varying degrees of faith. From young Samuel, who's having to be reminded by his parents of the truth, his dad, who really can't see how it'll make any difference, but he's trusting it anyway his mum who is trusting but she has the occasional niggle of doubt and then the next door neighbour who is rock solid and doesn't seem to have a doubt in the world. And then the next morning when they woke up to the sound of wailing in the distance from the Egyptians, mum and dad run into Sam's bedroom and find him alive and well because they sheltered under the blood of the lamb. And next door, the other family went running into their firstborn son's bedroom, and he was alive and well because they too were sheltering under the blood of the Lamb. But you see, it's not about how much faith we have that saves us. Even if our faith is wavering and uncertain. And I know when I speak to people in this uh, church family, some people say, I don't have very strong faith. Let me tell you, there are times when I don't either. It's wavering all over the place. I have all sorts of doubts sometimes. But if we're trusting in the promise of God, trusting alone in the blood of the slain land, then salvation will be ours as well. You can't be any more or less saved. You'd be saved just as much as the one with wavering faith, as the person whose faith seems strong and solid and immovable. Isn't that wonderful? And let me ask you this how would they have felt in the morning? when they ran in to see their firstborn still alive. Relieved? Oh, yes, they'd have been relieved. But rejoicing, heart full of thankfulness. Can you think of anything that would make your heart sing more? And to run in and see your little one safe and sound. They'd have wanted to celebrate, wouldn't they? Not only on that day, but on every anniversary of the Passover, they'd have had a party. They'd have been been delivered from the judgment of God. No wonder the Passover is such a great time of celebration. And that's why Easter should be a time when we celebrate more than ever. Yes, celebrate at Christmas, I'm going to do that, I love it. But all the more at Easter. For Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Jesus, the the perfect sinless unblemished lamb of god who lived among us for a time and then who shed his blood as a substitute for us by dying on the cross if we shelter under his blood we don't actually have to put blood on the doorframe but if we are saying i'm trusting in his blood even if we've got little faith we can be sure that we'll rescue we'll be rescued from the judgment to come we can face our death with confidence isn't that wonderful And you see, it's not about being religious. It's not about anything we do. It's all about what God has done for us. It's not even down to how much faith we have. It's down to the death of the lamb and God's saving act. Doesn't that make you want to celebrate? Doesn't it make you want to celebrate more than anything in the world? Christian, let me say to you, through Jesus, the Passover lamb, you've been rescued from the judgment of God. That is so good, we should hold an annual festival of celebration See, that's verse 14. This is the day you're to commemorate. For the generations to come, you shall celebrate it as a festival to the Lord, a lasting ordinance. And it is so good. We should celebrate for a week, verse 15, four, seven days. It's bigger than Christmas. For the Christian, it should be huge. And it's a time to be spent with the family, with the church family. Celebrate this Easter and every Easter. Celebrate bigger Easter than you do any time of the year. And celebrate here, will you? Will you? With us, with the church family. It's so good, God says, have a week's holiday to feast. Now, I'm afraid I can't tell you to take a week off work. You'll have to ask your boss to do that. But why don't you do it? Start with us on Maundy Thursday at our agape meal. Be with us on Good Friday, morning and afternoon if you like, but come along, and Easter Sunday. And then from bank holiday Monday, take a holiday and celebrate by feasting much. It's that good. Celebrate God's deliverance. Celebrate God's deliverance through the blood of the Lamb. Thirdly, and much more briefly, celebrate God's deliverance through the blood of the Lamb all year round. See, Easter is such good news that it will be a festival that is to be lived out not just this weekend, but all the year round. Let me show you what I mean by that. Verse 15 describes... The Feast of Unleavened Bread, this this week of celebrating. Bread made without yeast. And it speaks of removing all yeast from the house, verse 15. For seven days you are to eat bread made without yeast. On the first day, remove the yeast from your houses. For whoever eats anything with yeast in it, from the first day until the seventh must be cut off from Israel. And in the next few verses, speak of this Feast of Unleavened Bread. Now, with that in mind, this feast of unleavened bread and the the fact you've got to get rid of all yeast, with that in mind, turn with me, if you will, to 1 Corinthians chapter 5 as we draw to a close. Page 1147 is the page number. Page 1147. 1 Corinthians chapter 5 and verses 6 to 8. And this is the second of the two readings that Sandra read for us. Now, I'll read from verse 6, but before I do, let me tell you, if you look back to verse 1, you'll see that in the church, this is remarkable, in the church in Corinth at the time, there was sexual immorality going on. Uh, you see there at the end of verse 1, a man has his father's wife. That means that somebody in the congregation was either sleeping with his stepmother or with his mother. And can you believe it, verse 2, and you are proud. They were proud of it. That's what was going on in the church in Corinth. That's how bad it had got. And with that in mind, Paul writes, verse 6, your boasting is not good. Don't you know that a little yeast works through the whole batch of dough? Get rid of the old yeast that you may be a new batch, without yeast as you really are. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Therefore, let us keep the festival, the feast of unleavened bread. Let us keep the festival, not with the old yeast, the yeast of malice and wickedness, but with bread without yeast, the bread of sincerity and truth. Now, it's not actually complicated to understand what's going on here. You don't have to be a big fan of the Great British Bake Off to know that a little bit of yeast goes through the whole batch of dough. I am no baker, but even I know that you don't need much yeast for the whole dough to be affected. And what is true of yeast in bread, Paul says, is true of sin among God's people. Just a little bit of sin amongst us affects the whole church family. I don't think we've got this. We think, oh, well, if I just sin, nobody will know. It won't affect us. Even sin done in private, it affects us all, whether you like it or not. If you're part of this church family, if you're sinning, it affects us. And as a church family, then, we are to be new and pure, verse 7, without yeast, without sin. For, end of verse 7, Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed Therefore, let us keep the festival, not with the old yeast, the yeast of malice and wickedness, but with the bread without yeast, the bread of sincerity and truth. See what Paul is saying? Motivated by the Passover lamb, the cross of the Lord Jesus, we are to live out this feast of unleavened bread all year round by living a life without malice and wickedness. Motivated by the sacrificial death of Jesus Christ, we should get rid of, end of verse 11, sexual immorality, greed, idolatry, slander, drunkenness and swindling. We should be people who are, end of verse 8, sincere and truthful. That is, not hiding sin away, not pretending it's not happening, but being transparent in living a life of godly living. As we've already seen, the kind of thing that was going on in Corinth, although Paul is saying this is true of all sin, get rid of it, because of the thing that was going on in Corinth, he particularly majors on sexual sin and he says get rid of it be motivated by the wonderful death of jesus celebrate the passover and the feast of unleavened bread by getting rid of sexual immorality among you that's what paul said to corinth and sadly i think i need to say the same here for there are people in this congregation who are caught up in pornography and some who are harboring feelings towards someone else's spouse And others who are single and engaged in sexual intercourse. And others who are committing adultery. That happens in this congregation from time to time, sadly. And others who've accepted that homosexual practice is acceptable. And so with the Apostle Paul, I have to say, get rid of it. And here's the thing. Easter should motivate us to get rid of it. Because getting rid of it like... uh, like yeast, that we need to get rid of it because just a little bit among us will affect us all. It will spread through the whole church family. We should be so thankful for the Passover lamb, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, the sacrificial lamb who saves us from the coming judgment, so thankful that we don't want this stuff in our lives anymore. And so we should do away with them as a way of celebrating what he has done for us. I'm so thankful that you've died for me. I'll live a life that is pure for you. That's how we celebrate Easter all year round. Easter then, remembering Christ the Passover lamb. It should be such a highlight for us that there should be an eager expectation in the air that outweighs anything we experience at Christmas. We should celebrate it with the church family. Celebrate it by feasting. And celebrate it all year round by living a life of godliness. That is how to celebrate Easter.